Hello and welcome to the Vera Magazine podcast. I'm Johnny Ensel here to rifle and rummage through the very greatest global trends, travel, film and TV the world has to offer in November 2023. On the itinerary this month, we'll be hearing how Tex-Mex chefs are turning up the heat in San Antonio, how the cultural influence of the Amazon rainforest is reaching all the way to the city of Sao Paulo, and giving you a very good reason to book your next getaway in the underloved area of Croydon. And also listen out for a little bit of this. What about her screams, clean bum? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) New segment, who has the cleanest bum in Hollywood? (laughs) In these winter months, we need something red hot in our lives. And here to provide it is Vera editor Jessica Prupus with her tips for the trending things happening around the world. Hello, Jess. Hi. Have you got lots of trending bits for us? Yes, lots of major cultural happenings. Yeah, it's a big month for big culture, is it? Yeah, big time. Okay, where do you want to start? Um, let's start in NYC. Mm-hmm. The Perlman Center of Performing Arts. Have you heard of this? Uh, I haven't. No. Where is this? What is it? So it is in Lower Manhattan uh, on the site of the old World Trade Center. Yeah. It opened in September, which is fitting, obviously. Mm-hmm. So it's a part of the sort of regeneration of the Ground Zero area of New York, of Manhattan. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, that area has been a bit destitute for the last two decades. There is one World Trade Center there, but otherwise not much has been going on. And this Performing Arts Center really signals a new era in the region, I'd say. Mm -hmm. And uh, what's special about it? So it just looks amazing. It looks like a giant cube that's sort of shimmering above street level it looks like it's floating wow and this is because it's made up of uh, translucent portuguese marble uh, like slabs of marble that are sandwiched between glass and this particular kind of marble allows light to pass through so the performing arts center gets this like beautiful light throughout the day and then in the evening the marble glows an amber color so it's just like really spectacular yeah i mean it sounds it so outside it's absolutely marvelous inside it is equally so yeah inside there's a lot going on there's three stages that are sort of modular so they can be reconfigured to house different capacities and into different configurations um 62 different configurations in fact um, which is just like a real feat of architecture okay and what's going on there what's in the program so they're gonna kind of do it all they're gonna do dance music they're having like intellectual conversations uh Mm. opera much like we're having now we're having an (laughs) could that happen at the pillman center no they can't reach these intellectual heights (laughs) very few can um but other than that they've got a reimagining of cats Um, (laughs) right uh, great (laughs) but this time with an injection of uh new york style ballroom uh oh wow interesting they're doing vogue cats cats to (laughs) colon vogue Uh, I mean, Uh, you had me at Vogue Cats, to be honest with you. (laughs) Okay, well, I'm getting the gist. I mean, it sounds like yet another iconic architectural landmark in a city that doesn't need any more iconic architectural landmarks. (laughs) Surely not. You'd think they'd stop at some point. Yeah, yeah. But but also a sort of important cultural centre and and, uh, memorial Mm. on the the 9-11 site. Okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. excellent pick. Any more big stuff? Yeah, well, back on this side of the pond in Edinburgh, there is a new restaurant called Tipo. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's in the new town. Mm. It's uh, headed up by Stuart Ralston, who is a chef uh, who also owns a few other restaurants in the city that are very well loved and applauded. So there's uh, we were talking about how to say this before. It's spelled A I Z L E. Yeah, I I think it's <laughs> I, I think it's Azel. Azel. Yeah. Azel. I can't do a Scottish accent, can you? Well, uh, no, I mean I did used to live in Scotland, but um no, I can't do a Scottish accent <laughs> at all. But I'm I'm going to say I'm going to say Azel and I looked it up and it, it is a, a small ember. Yes, sure. 
<laughs> Makes sense. Uh, yeah, this is a neo bistro in the city mm. uh, that's very popular. And then there's another one called Nodo that he is in charge of, and it's more like Asian leaning, but yes, also a very hot table. Mm. But this is an Italian sort of place. This is. Uh, it's named for the double zero flour that's used mm-hmm. for, you know, for the good stuff, the good pasta. Yep, yep, yep. And so they're serving pasta and small plates, stuff like the octopus carpaccio with uh, little blobs of romesco, sweet pickled cucumber, radish and herbs, mm. the parpadelle with sweet crab and chili. So... It's just kind of like straightforward cooking, nothing too trendy, nothing too, you know, out there, but it's just good stuff. And I say it kind of encapsulates the restaurant scene in Edinburgh at the moment. Like when I've been there, I've always been impressed by how tasty it is, but then also how they're not slaves to trends like a lot of restaurants in Mm, London. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, Edinburgh does famously have a high concentration of Michelin-style restaurants and, and a lot of other excellent restaurants which don't have Michelin stars. And, um, mm. yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, befitting a capital city, I think, that the, the quality of the culinary scene there. Uh, and, and Tipo has now opened to add to that, so thank you for that pick. Where are you going to take us next? I'm going to take you to beautiful, sunny Croydon Mm. (laughs) in South London. Oh, excellent. I I say excellent because that's very near to where I live. (laughs) Uh, So I am in beautiful South London (laughs) as we speak. What should I do while I'm here? (laughs) Well, head on down the road to Birch Selsden. So this is the new Birch Hotel. It's the second, the second ever Birch Hotel. Their first one was in Chessent, which is kind of like north of London, but This one is within the bounds of the city. And like I said, it's within the bounds of Croydon, which is um, not (laughs) particularly known for its beauty. (laughs) Yeah, you're being quite tactful here. I mean, Croydon is uh, like a town that is connected to London and is famously a bit of a dump. But that is deeply unfair to Croydon because in recent times it's become quite cool. And this is, uh, you know, some evidence of that, presumably. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, they're trying. <laughs> Bless them. <laughs> what is the vibe at Birch then? Yeah, Birch is, uh, it's got a really unique kind of IP. So uh, it's a members club. So everyone who kind of like is lucky enough to live nearby, they can get a membership and then they can come to the hotel. There's a nice co-working space. There's like a full spec fitness suite, a yoga room. Uh, there's a kids club, a pool. So it's kind of like the Soho house of Croydon. Mm. And then it's also a hotel. So, you know, if you're a guest, you can take advantage of all these things as well. And it's geared towards, you know, world-weary Londoners who just want to get out and have a kind of bucolic escape, but don't really want to go that far from London. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're sort of pretending that you're leaving the city when actually you're mm, mm. You're, you're not really doing anything like it. Yeah, I mean, I can get on board with that. That sounds great. Yeah, it's really nice. I mean, I went a few weeks ago. The grounds are beautiful. It does feel like you're in the country somewhere amongst their beautiful, you know, garden and rolling grounds. But, you know, you're never too far from a zone three station. Yeah, exactly. Hop Hop on the overground whenever you want. Okay, yeah. Thank you, Jess. That's a very pertinent recommendation. Where are we heading next? Vegas, baby. And what's happening there? There's a giant sphere that just opened uh, right off the strip. Mm. Big ball. Big ball. There's a big ball that's opened off the strip and it is imaginatively called the sphere. Yeah. And uh, I've, I mean, I have seen on social media what this looks like and it's terrifying because they, <laughs> they, they project things on the outside of it that look very real. So it's like a kind of giant eye in a kind of big brothery way looking at everybody as they pass by or it's a, a basketball or something like that right yeah the future is here and it's terrifying <laughs> uh. <laughs> yeah so i know what's on the outside of the sphere which is this like led projection but what's on the inside of the sphere so it is basically a giant concert venue right okay it's apparently the world's largest spherical structure so there's a few superlatives attached to this venue so it's the world's largest spherical structure it's 366 feet 
tall and 516 feet wide. It's also got inside the venue of the world's highest resolution wraparound screen. So it's got this like high resolution screen that just wraps around the entire, mm. the entirety of the venue. And yeah, their thing is going to be kind of AR concerts, music gigs. A- AR is in augmented reality. Augmented reality. Yeah. So, you know, it's a bit of an ill-defined term, but it's basically like immersive gigs yeah so t- technologically enhanced performances yeah and maybe the actual band doesn't need to be there every night no certainly not because why would you well, if you're yeah i mean abba <laughs> yes yeah like abba has done in london with their concert mm-hmm. series where they're not actually in london but nobody cares i mean that's that's <laughs> incredible whoever figured that out that's absolutely incredible <laughs> you know you can put on a concert without the band i mean that's brilliant. Why would you why would you leave your cozy lakeside Swedish property <laughs> if yeah. you don't have to? I don't really begrudge Abba though for doing that. <laughs> and um I guess I won't begrudge the sphere people either. No, but um they're starting out with a live gig from U2. So, you know, Bono Bono's actually gonna be there. He's mm. playing twenty five gigs uh this season. Crikey. No rest for Bono. <laughs> so so the Sphere is a huge concert venue in Vegas. It is like decked out with all the bells and whistles of modern technology and you two are going to be in there for 25 consecutive nights yeah that's the sum of it okay great i mean that sounds extremely vegas mm. and in a good way so let's uh let's move on to something else what else are you recommending celebs cleaning up mm, how are they doing that uh jason derulo you remember him oh i'm vaguely aware of a man called Jason Derulo. Mm-hmm. He was a singer, is a singer. And he was in Cats? Was he in Cats? Oh, yeah, I think he was. Yeah, to keep the Cats theme going this episode. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And every time I think of him, I just hear his voice going, Jason Derulo. <laughs> <laughs> I well, yeah, oof, it's all coming back to me now. Jason Derulo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what is, Anyways. Yeah, what is he doing? <laughs> He's making passive income, smart guy, mm. uh, by owning a chain of car washes. Oh, brilliant. Like um, Walter White in Breaking Bad. Yeah, sure. <laughs> famous car wash. <laughs> famous car wash. <laughs> famous uh, car wash magnate. Yeah. And uh, okay, who else? What other celebrities are cleaning things? Courtney Cox, aka Monica from Friends. Mm-hmm. Last year, she launched a brand called Home Court. Uh, and they flog like cleaning products uh, like home cleaners, spray cleaners and dish soaps. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I can see that for her. Can you? Mm. Their whole thing is making home care a thing. Like you have self-care and they're like, do the same for your home. <laughs> That's so made up. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very made up. <laughs> it's, uh, yes. So this whole idea is really giving Monica. Mm-hmm. It, do you think like, Matt LeBlanc could be doing a sort of Joey-themed sexual health kit or uh, <laughs> I don't know what the others would be doing. Ross-themed paleontology kits for children. <laughs> uh, Chandler doing an anti-gay kit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah because i really don't feel as if uh, all of the marketing revenue has been squeezed out of the friends franchise yet no i barely ever hear about them i mean i hardly own three pencil cases (laughs) yeah well good for courtney yeah good for her and who is the final celeb who's touting stuff chris jenner heard of her yeah yeah and what's she cleaning she has got a line of cleaning products called Safely, who have the tagline, they smell great and actually work. <laughs> Brilliant. That's kind of the least I expect. I'm not buying the one that says it smells bad and works occasionally. I love it. It's like a throwback to kind of like old school marketing where all you had to do is say, yeah, this product does a thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I suppose I would. Would I believe Chris Jenner? Yeah, I think I probably would believe. You think she's a trustworthy person? With Chris Jenner's endorsement, I would believe it smells good and actually works. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the Kardashians are, are not known for their trickery. <laughs> I mean, I bet I bet they all smell good. I think that's helping me. Um, <laughs> all right, okay, so, they, you know, they're cleaning up uh, in both senses with their product tie-ins i'm wondering who's going to get into the toilet paper game you know i, I want to feel like my my bum is being treated the same as for example 
Tiffany Haddish. <laughs> <laughs> why, did, why did you pull Tiffany Haddish out? I don't know. <laughs> I was just thinking, you know, I was, I was just trying to picture somebody on the toilet. <laughs> what about her screams, clean bum? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know who has the cleanest. I don't know who has the cleanest bum in. Uh... <laughs> New segment: Who has the cleanest bum in Hollywood? <laughs> Maybe Sir Alex Ferguson. You know, famously, uh, famously said it was squeaky bum time. You know, he could, he could very aggressively market his own toilet roll. <laughs> yeah, more power to him. Yeah. Okay. Well, look out for that on next month's edition of Vera, Alex Ferguson themed Man United toilet roll. Uh, Thank you, Jess, for everything. You're welcome. This month's location scout is about Sao Paulo, and specifically how the Amazon rainforest becomes part of the city. How does that incredible biodiversity manifest itself on the city streets? Well, to find out, we're going to have a chat with journalist Catherine Bolston, who's living in Sao Paulo. So let's see if we can get Catherine on the phone now. Hello. Hi, Catherine, it's Johnny. Hi, Johnny. How are you doing? How's Sao Paulo today? I'm very well, thanks. It's a lovely sunny day here. And whereabouts are you? I've just arrived at the Art Biennale in Sao Paulo, which kicked off um, at the beginning of September and is going through till December. It's the biggest art exhibition of the year in Brazil. Okay, wow. And and what's the atmosphere there like? What can you see and do? So there's lots of people milling around and there's so much going on. It's, it's a really amazing atmosphere here. So I'm on the ground floor of the building. It's this stunning building inside Sao Paulo's Ibirapuera Park, which some people say is like Sao Paulo's Central Park. It's full of museums, full of trees. And this is a purpose-built building that was built in the 50s beautiful modernist building designed by Brazilian architect Oscar Niemeyer full of concrete and curves and it hosts once every other year this three-month biennale which is a huge moment in the art scene in Sao Paulo. So it's a big deal lots of people there lots of international artists. Yes lots of international artists lots of emerging artists. This year's theme is it's called choreographies of the impossible i'm not quite sure yet what that means but i know that this year there are the highest number of non-white artists that have ever been featured in a in a sao paulo biennale so it's really interesting to see the different range of works there's lots of work from black artists i'm sitting next to a film here by three yanomami artists from the um, yanomami region of the amazon Right. Okay. Fascinating. Well, I was going to ask you about that and how, you know, we talk a lot about the Amazon rainforest and its future and the necessity of it to the future of humanity. I mean, how much is uh, the rainforest a presence even within the city? Well, I'd say, first of all, that it's important to note that Sao Paulo is a long way from the Amazon, right? Mm. We're a couple of thousand miles away. So Sao Paulo has its own biome, which is the Atlantic Forest. So I'm surrounded by tropical rainforest here, but it's not the Amazon. But that said, you know, the Amazon is very much a part of Sao Paulo culture, mainly through the people that have migrated here from the Amazon, also through its culture, that we see, for example, in the Biennale here today, artists from the Amazon talking about the issues they face. In the food, there are some amazing restaurants here that are all about celebrating Amazonian cuisine. And museums and in various other cultural centers, we can see and learn about the kind of rich diversity of people and culture, which I think perhaps is something people don't think about so much when they think of the Amazon. You know, they think about huge expanse of forest, mm. lots of different indigenous groups there, but we don't kind of think about the people. It's, it's as much about the people as it is the forest. So that diversity of people and culture is very much present here in Sao Paulo. Yes, yeah, so I, I suppose I've sort of lumped Brazil in with this idea of a rainforest, haven't I? But actually, you're talking about a variety of different uh, biomes, as you say. It's quite interesting. It's also a huge country, which maybe we forget being in a small country. Yes, I mean, so the Amazon is in the north of Brazil. We're in the southeast of Brazil here in Sao Paulo. So it, most of the Amazon is in Brazil, but I would say half of Brazil is 
Amazon. Mm. But also interesting to note that, you know, the Amazon, it goes beyond national borders. You know, it's not just Brazil. It, it actually spans nine countries in South America. So I think that's something people don't really think about either when they think about the Amazon, that it's it's actually about such a, it's such a diverse territory in terms of countries. You know, it's Venezuela, it's Colombia, it's Peru and, and a few other countries. So when we talk about the Amazon culture in Sao Paulo, we also see that in different national cuisines. For example, we have mm. Peruvian food from the Amazon in Sao Paulo. Well, let's talk a bit about food and restaurants and places like that. Like, where would you recommend, especially that has this kind of connection to, uh, you know, the environment, the biodiversity of this country? It's really interesting because 20 years ago in Sao Paulo, what local people aspired to in terms of fine dining, it was all about French cuisine and mm. Italian cuisine. And there wasn't really an appreciation for Brazilian cuisine, you know, Brazilian ingredients. Yeah, yeah. And so that started to change with chefs like, I don't know if you've heard of Alex Atala, but he opened his restaurant Dom in 1999 and he was really a pioneer in terms of bringing ingredients from across different biomes in Brazil, including the Amazon, to a, a fine dining menu. And, and it was pre-revolutionary when he started doing that, but he really kicked off a movement which we call Brazilian modern cuisine which has really taken shape and, and gained momentum over the last um, two decades where contemporary chefs instead of turning to you know Italy and France for cuisine they're looking you know to the local the fruits of the forest the seeds mm. of the forest the the cheeses and the meats of rural producers and really trying to put the rich diversity of Brazilian cuisine on the menu of the top restaurants. So Dom, as I mentioned, Alexis Haller's Dom is still is still going strong. It's a it's an expensive and very sort of smart tasting menu experience, but there are plenty of other restaurants where you can perhaps get a more informal experience and get a taste of the Amazon. So for example, there's a restaurant called Banzero, which began in Manaus, which is the biggest city in the Amazon, and the, sh the chef from there, Felipe Scheidler, he opened a branch in Sao Paulo a few years ago, and there you can try really interesting things that you won't find anywhere else in the world. For example, he serves ants, saúva ants, which have this extraordinary taste. Some people get a bit squeamish about it, but it's got a taste of almost lemongrass, mm. these big ants that you crunch into. He also serves amazing Amazonian river fish, so freshwater fish that he brings down from the Amazon that are grilled whole and wrapped in banana leaves and, and really sort of quite a, a sight to behold on the table. These huge fish are delicious. And then there are other restaurants which are, are kind of more homely. For example, I went to one a couple of weeks ago called Quintal Parainti, which is run by a lady from Pará, which is one of the Brazilian states within the Amazon, and her two daughters, and they kind of started as a food truck, and now they've just opened their own restaurant where they serve really authentic dishes from Pará. So you get dishes like takaká, which are made with a sort of fermented cassava broth with dried shrimps and this herb called jambu which it sort of numbs your tongue gives your tongue a funny tingling feeling they serve takakao and other traditional dishes and they they have traditional dancing you can do a dance lesson in karimbo which is a, a dance form from para and the amazon so really sort of interesting mix of drinks and and cultural experiences using all these incredibly diverse and fascinating ingredients from the amazon that are really like nothing i've ever tried anywhere else in the world well, that sounds like a brilliant uh, set of recommendations. And I can really see, as you say, how, how people are leaning into, you know, what's unique about Brazil. Um, is that reflected in anything else going on in the city, you know, in terms of crafts or just anything that you can do or experience? Yeah, so we can see Amazonian culture in other ways in the city. For example, in some of its museums, we're seeing more and more indigenous artists from the Amazon having their work displayed in, in museums and other museums that have permanent collections of artifacts from the Amazon. One of them that I really love, it's it's tiny museum, but it's really interesting. It's called the Museo Xingu. And I don't know if you know, but the Xingu is the name of an indigenous reserve 
in the Amazon. And it was really the first indigenous reserve to be created in the Americas. It was established in, in the 1960s to protect a huge piece of land. It's, it's eight and a half thousand square miles, which is kind of bigger than Belgium, to basically help the indigenous communities there protect their culture and and be able to live off the land and protect their land you know through law so two of the people that were instrumental in creating that indigenous reserve were the were called the villas boas brothers and they spent a lot of time in the region working with the with the local indigenous people there and there's this museum which is basically a collection of artifacts that they gathered in the region so you've got everything from ceramics to cooking instruments ceremonial robes artworks you've even got this fascinating glove that's used by one particular group called the Satare Mawe which um, young boys wear in a in a rite of passage where they have to put on this glove which is filled with these ants that sting mm. really painful sting and, and they have to sort of go through this ritual so really interesting little immersion into into some of the indigenous cultures from the Shingu. There's obviously a wealth of craft that comes out of the Amazon from basket weaving to hammocks to wooden carvings, benches, often objects that reflect animals from the Amazon. So I've got one craft shop that I love called Amoa Kanoya, which is run by a guy who spent a lot of time traveling around the Amazon and he brings objects that are just fascinating pieces of art and pieces of craft. You know, talking to him, you could talk to him for hours about about his travels around the Amazon. It's really fascinating. And you also find shops in fancy upmarket shopping malls. There's one called Archis, which is in one of the new luxury shopping malls. And I love that basically they get a free rent for their space. And it's it's run by an NGO which works to protect and to promote crafts from around Brazil so from all different regions but that includes the Amazon so you can see some really beautiful products jewelry again baskets weaving tapestries from the Amazon it's stunning so let's talk about Sao Paulo as a city Mm -hmm. what's the vibe is it arriving there as a visitor how am I going to feel am I going to feel like I'm in a happening place I think when people first arrive to Sao Paulo, they're overwhelmed, first of all, by the size. And there's a huge periphery that's basically almost like favela accommodation, very poor parts of the city. So it's quite, I think people are quite shocked. And really, I find that people either love it or they hate it. And I, and I was hope that people give it a chance because generally people don't love it at first sight. It takes a day or two to kind of find your feet. It's pretty overwhelming with a lot of traffic, with a lot of people. It's the biggest city in South America, 20 million people. So it's, you know, it's huge and it's noisy and it's chaotic. But I think if you give it time, you will love it. I love it. I've lived here for 15 years. I can never get bored here because it's constantly reinventing itself. It really is such a mix of cultures from all across Brazil. You know, it was a city that was built by migrants, basically, and it's populated by migrants and immigrants. So huge Japanese community, huge Italian community, huge Lebanese community, and communities from different parts of Brazil who, you know, people still coming here from all over Brazil to to find work, basically, and, and to make money. So it's a city that kind of works hard, but it also plays hard and and the food seems amazing the nightlife is amazing and contrary to what people think they call it the concrete jungle but there is actually a lot of forest here and a lot of greenery a lot of beautiful trees i'm in you know this park Ibera Puera park and just looking out here through the floor to ceiling glass windows and all i can see is greenery and trees so you can find you can find everything here and that's what i think is so fascinating about it Wow, okay, so there's, there's a little bit of everything. Indigenous culture, there's uh, happening metropolitan stuff. Uh, it sounds pretty amazing. Thank you so much for showing us around that space and um, enjoy the rest of the exhibitions today. Thank you very much. Should you find yourself in San Antonio with a hunger on, you'd best be in the mood for something spicy. The southern Texan city is the birthplace of chili con carne, a dish that's found its way onto menus the world over, although often in name only. 
More than 100 years on since it gifted this hearty Tex-Mex staple to the world, San Antonio still takes its chili very seriously indeed, with cook-offs and events held to honour those elevating spicy meat stew to an art form. One person who's big on the city's chili scene is Diana Barrios Trevino, who runs four restaurants in the city and has Tex-Mex in her blood. Here's Diana to tell us more. I'm Diana Barrios Trevino. I'm from San Antonio, Texas, and I'm an owner and operator of the Los Barrios Mexican restaurants here in San Antonio. San Antonio was once a part of Mexico, and many years ago, you would have the vaqueros, the cowboys, the people that were working the cattle and coming to this part of what was then Mexico. And when they traveled here on horse, they did not have electric refrigerators or, or Yeti coolers to keep their food cold. So they ended up bringing with them a lot of food that would dry up and they could still use. And some of those items included the chilies because chilies dry up beautifully and then you can bring them back to life. Once these people arrived to this new area, which is San Antonio, they would take the protein that was available to them and they would use the vegetables that were available to them and they would use their dried chilies and create these dishes. And that's how I believe chile con carne got its start. Fast forward to the early 1900s here in San Antonio, now part of Texas and of the United States, we had the chili queens. And these were ladies that would set up their tables around the downtown square, the main square, and they would set up and serve their chili. And they were bowls of chili, chili con carne, and people from all over San Antonio, which of course wasn't very big, by nowhere near as big as it is today. They would flock to downtown to eat these. The businessmen, the families, they would go and have this chili. It was so good. And those ladies, they were the foundation my father bought my mother this small restaurant in 1972, and my mother learned to make the chili from the lady she bought the restaurant from. Eventually, my mom maybe tweaked it a little bit. My mother kept her recipe consistent. It's still the recipe we use today. But even in the early 70s, these people would come in, our customers would come in, and some people would order their bowl of chili with white bread or crackers and always onions and cheese, a yellow cheese, like an American cheese or a cheddar cheese on top. And, you know, my mother was very much a stickler for you never compromise quality. It doesn't matter if they offer you a cheaper product. That's not going to help. Paying less for something that's been diluted or just not of the highest quality. She was she had no interest in that. She wanted to make sure that her product was always the best. So the chili con carne is just really, truly a staple in Texas. It really is. And not only do we serve it in restaurants, but, you know, there are chili cook-offs. There are chili festivals. There are chili throwdowns where people compete against each other to, to get those bragging rights of saying, I make the best chili in Texas or in San Antonio or in Tilingua or San Marcos or whichever town you know, is hosting these types of events. And basically what they are, they're just fun, full day filled with lots of chili sampling. You go from table to table with however they have it set up and you get to taste a little sampling. You know, some events you get to vote for the people's favorite and some, you know, they have judges. I have been a judge many, many times and uh, my husband and I actually get to judge chili and that's a lot of fun. Some chilies uh, that they do at these events are very spicy. Some are very mild. Some have beans. Some don't have beans. Ours does not have beans. But these are fun-filled days. They have live music. Everybody's happy. And at the end of the day, somebody gets those bragging rights. And that's what it's all about. When making chile con carne, you have to get it right. And the, the one ingredient I feel that you need to have the right ingredient is the chili powder that you use to make the chile con carne. I'm going to tell you basically what chile con carne is. 
it's ground beef. You add your garlic, you add a tiny bit of cumin, a little salt and pepper. Chili powder is the key. We have been using the same one for as long as we have been in the restaurant business, like I said, 50 years, and you don't mess with it. But that's basically it. It's not hard to make. So locally, there are different styles of chili con carne, and some of these versions include different kinds of meat. For instance, deer meat is used so much in chili con carne. I've seen it in restaurants. I've seen it at these competitions that I've judged. And they're fun, but they're not traditional. And there's something about being tradicional, as we like to say in Spanish. Tradicional brings it home. I mean, I wish I could explain to you how... (laughs) delicious this is. The San Antonio food scene has really blown up. I mean, it's just amazing, the food, the restaurants that we have here. There are lots of Mexican restaurants in San Antonio, Tex-Mex restaurants, authentic Mexican from different regions of Mexico. Now, there are also our very upscale restaurants that are creating these amazing dishes from these recipes that are the foundation of of Tex-Mex cooking here in San Antonio. And yes, creating very different dishes and using these ingredients. Is that something that will continue? I think so. Are those menu items here to stay? I think what these chefs do, because these are are in chef-driven restaurants, I think because they change their menus from time to time, I mean, season to season, some month to month, those will continue to change and evolve. Do I think chili con carne is here to stay for the long run? Absolutely. It's just one of those traditions that I don't see it going away. You know, a lot of people are moving to San Antonio and they're moving to Texas and they're being introduced to our food, our San Antonio style Mexican food, our Texas Mexican food. There is Mexican food all over the world. There is Tex-Mex food all over the world. But there's nothing, nothing like the food of San Antonio. Our Tex-Mex food in San Antonio, well, there's nowhere else but San Antonio for that. You can find out more about Diana's restaurants at losbarriosrestaurant.com. We finish with What's On, where we discover those films and TV shows that you should definitely be watching on board today. And for that, we have guest critic Ellen E. Jones with us to give us her picks. Hello, Ellen. Hello. How's it going? Uh, Very well, thank you. Would you start with your film picks for us today? I've been a bit spoiled for choice this month, actually. There's a film that everybody's been swooning over, and rightfully so. It's called Past Lives. Mm. It's a debut feature by a Korean-Canadian director called Celine Song. And the best way I can describe this film to you is, you know how there are words in other languages for certain emotions and experiences that can't be translated directly into English? but kind of enrich our understanding of the world and ourselves. So I'm thinking of there's this Russian word, razbluto, which mm. means the way you feel about someone you used to love, but you don't love anymore. Oh my gosh, that's beautiful. <laughs> These kinds of exquisite emotions. Well, I also think there are kind of tones that can only be expressed in cinema. And this is that kind of expression, past life. It's a really beautiful romance, although that kind of undersells it. It stars Greta Lee who people might be familiar with from the Netflix series Russian Doll. She was Natasha Leon's friend in that great mm. series, if, if you haven't caught it. And she's playing a Korean-Canadian, much like the, the director, Celine Song, um, who moved from Seoul to Toronto with her parents as a child, but not before forming this kind of fated connection with her childhood sweetheart, Hey Sun, played by a guy called T.O.U. So is it a bit of a tearjerker or what sort? What are you left with at the end of this film? Yeah, tears, but not entirely sad ones, kind of bittersweet ones. I mean, in the film, there's this concept, another not entirely translatable concept uh, in Korean culture of in yun, which means a personal connection transcending lifetimes. So that's discussed within the film. But where it goes with that is much more interesting than your traditional over-the-top melodramatic Hollywood romance or, or you know, light-hearted rom-com. But you'll just have to watch the film to find out. It can only be experienced by experiencing the film. 
Wow, okay, so I'm feeling like I'm going to have a deeper understanding of life itself coming out of this. That's fair. That's not overstating yeah. it. Well, that's, you know, what else do you want? Has it got explosions? No, don't don't worry. <laughs> I'm all right. I'm all right with that explosions. Okay, what's your next pick, please, Ellen? So my next one is Scrapper. Um, this is a British film by a writer-director, Charlotte Reagan, and I think of this as the second instalment in a tripartite renaissance of visually gorgeous, narratively ambitious, emotionally astute British filmmaking, which began with Charlotte Wells' After Sun yeah. um, last year. Do you remember that film? I do. Also has been a highlight on Vera. Yeah, I'm not surprised. It's a gorgeous film. Um, and it will continue uh, this year with Molly Manning Walker's How to Have Sex, which is also about uh, a kind of holiday, a memories of a holiday. Um, and in fact, Molly Manning Walker is cinematographer on Scrapper, this mm. film that we're talking about now. So that's another way in which the three are linked. It's about a resourceful, resilient 12 year old girl called Georgie, played wonderfully by Lola Campbell, who's getting by after the death of her single mother and managing somehow to continue to live alone, you know, evading social services. And then the dad that she's never met turns up and he's played by Harris Dickinson, who's just a wonder but this guy is kind of much more childlike than his own daughter in many ways. And they sort of warily get to know each other. As I say, Harris Dickinson is an incredible talent. You might remember he was in Triangle of Sadness. Mm-hmm. He was the male model in that that yeah. uh, had a terrible time of it. Well, they all had a terrible time of it in Triangle of Sadness, but <laughs> he seemed to fare particularly badly. And it's very visually inventive with lots of little quirks to sort of mimic the shortened attention span of smartphone-addicted preteens, which sounds incredibly irritating, I grant you, but it's not, I promise. Um, and the colours are, are great too. My colleague Wendy Ide at The Observer described it as, as looking like a packet of refreshers sweets, and I can't really improve on that, so I'm just going to repeat it, but it's great. Um, and at heart, it's just this incredibly accurate, resonant evocation of childhood and, and the parent-child bond that I think universally people are going to get something out of but particularly british people and particularly british people who love british film okay excellent so it's sort of slightly awash with nostalgia but in a kind of multicolored way well it's contemporary but but yeah about childhood emotions that you might not have felt for a while right yes emotional nostalgia Hmm. yeah lovely okay yeah yeah another extremely meaningful and evocative uh suggestion what is your third pick please ellen so we're in America for this one. Mm-hmm. Um, I quite often find myself recommending comedies that really are only raise a kind of wry smile. And I'm okay with that. You know, sometimes that's what you're in the mood for. But I'm going to have to issue a warning to go along with Theatre Camp. And that is that this film will properly make you guffaw. It mm. is very, very funny. Big belly laughs. Uh, it's about a performing arts summer camp uh, for kids in upstate New York that's under threat of closure because of some financial issues that we don't really need to go into um there's an evil investor character played by patty harrison who's great but of course despite all this the show must go on um and it's in that kind of taking showbiz very very seriously spirit that that the film is made it's directed and written by molly gordon and nick lieberman molly gordon you might know from the bear everyone's been watching the bear recently the amazing drama about a restaurant in chicago Uh, she she played the the girlfriend of um carmen in in the new series a character i found quite irritating but um (laughs) theater camp has kind of wiped away all those bad memories because it's fantastic she does incredible work in it she's very very funny the kids are all really sweet as well and and played by an actual children you know not 30 year olds dressed as children which is this weird thing that the movies do sometimes it reminds me a bit of the um, Richard Linklater film with Jack Black, School of Rock. Hmm. It's got that kind of wholesome but anarchic, energetic kid quality uh, but without being kind of cutesy and, you know, unbearable. And also, I think, you know, I predict that this is going to be one of those comedy generation defining films, a bit like, you know, the Christopher Guest movie, Best in Show. Yes, yeah, about the dogs. Yeah, or um, that Judd Apatow show, um, Freaks and Geeks, where, you know, mm. I think we're going to look back on this film in about 20 years' time and go, oh, yeah, all these guys were already doing their thing back then and look where they are now. People like Ayo Adibiri, who's, who's also in um, The Bear, actually, Molly Gordon, again, Ben Platt, Patty Harrison, Nathan Leah Graham, all these names you're going to need to remember because they're going to be doing big things in comedy. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, that sounds very much up my street as well. 
I love to laugh, <laughs> and um, I uh, have quite a loud laugh as well. So I don't know how you. Oh, me tr- too. I think I could uh, shake a house down with my laugh. Sometimes quite <laughs> embarrassing. Do you know, I think how do you control that on the plane? Or maybe you don't have to. Maybe everybody would enjoy it. <laughs> well, this is why I issued a warning for that one because you know it's not it's not one you can sort of politely enjoy in silence. There will be involuntary laughter. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, excellent. Thank you very much. Let's move on to TV. Now, I don't know if the search for the next James Bond is still on, but if it is, Barbara Broccoli can't have seen the first series of Gangs of London because I'm telling you, Sope Dirisu is it. Mm. This guy's incredible in this role. He stars as an undercover policeman who's infiltrated one of the most powerful gangs in the most exciting multicultural city in the world. Big up London, mm-hmm. E9 till I die. <laughs> and um, it's it's um, based on a video game, actually, Gangs of London, but I didn't even know that until I recently looked it up um, which you should take as a great compliment to the show because we all know video game adaptations are notoriously rubbish you wouldn't know from watching this that it was based on a video game it's directed by gareth evans a welshman known for his indonesian action classic the raid yeah great film and it tells in these great film and the action sequences in this show so it's some of the best fight choreography that i've seen on british television ever Episode six in particular, I think, is one of the single greatest episodes of television I've ever seen. I will wow. say that the quality falls off quite dramatically in the second season, <laughs> but we don't need to worry about that because it's only season one that you're going to be watching. <laughs> uh, yeah, I feel like there are shows like that that have just one perfect season. So don't, yeah. don't, don't watch don't watch any more than that, like Heroes or um, Westworld yeah. or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Quit while you're ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so there's only one season of Gangs of London and you should watch it now. Okay, your next TV pick, please, Ellen. So my next TV pick is Race Across the World, specifically the third season of Race Across the World. This is my absolute favourite thing, which is a reality TV show that I can pretend is highbrow. Hmm. It's kind of a a combination of reality TV, a travel show and high-end family drama. It's about teams of two... They could be friends or couples or, or you know, mother, daughter, father, daughter. And they're competing to get from point A to point B around the world in the fastest time. And the catch is that they're not allowed to use their mobile phones. They're not allowed to fly and they're not allowed to take a plane. And they're not allowed to go over budget. They've got a limited budget. I think in this series, it's £2,498.13 per person. <laughs> Why so specific? It's supposed to be the cost of a one-way flight to oh, their, to their destination. Yes, yeah. So in previous series, they've been doing transcontinental travel, like from London to Singapore, for example. In this series, they're just traveling across Canada from Vancouver to Newfoundland, which might sound easier, but actually the landscapes are so vast and varied, it isn't. And also they have bears in Canada, so you've Mm. got to watch out for those as well. Um, And it's just perfect reality television because it combines you know they have injuries they have rows they do incredibly silly annoying things to waste their money that that if you've ever been traveling with a friend or a family member will probably resonate um they bond emotionally and you'll develop like favorites that you'll be cheering on uh, my favorites are laddie and monique in in this series uh, so lots of highs and lows and great viewing that that really came to its own actually in 2020 when we were all in lockdown and dreaming of doing this kind of trip yeah so there's an element of wanderlust and um i mean i've i've seen bits of this show and uh it, it feels like what's key to it are the way in which the relationships develop between the people you know the real journey is the emotional journey <laughs> they go on together you might say exactly yeah exactly okay well yeah i mean um definitely a good plain watch i would say great thank you ellen so what is your final pick Next up is Atlanta, the fourth and final series of Donald Glover's just peerless TV show. Mm. He's reinvented the form of, of sitcom, if you can call it that, which you can't really, of, but just of serialised television. It's a very difficult show to describe because the one-liner doesn't, absolutely doesn't cover it. But essentially, Earn, played by Donald Glover, who's the, the showrunner and the creator, is a kind of college dropout who starts managing his cousin paperboy a rapper goes by the name of paperboy his cousin al who's played by brian tyree henry and he's also kind of getting into scrapes with his ex-girlfriend and they've got a daughter together and there's a sort of stoner mystic character played by lakeith stanfield called darius and for most of the first two series in fact for all the first two series they're kind of mooching around in their hometown of atlanta and it's kind of about the music scene of this place 
But then in the last series, they went on tour and they were in Europe. There were a couple of episodes that were actually filmed in London, which was quite thrilling for, for me to see, like streets <laughs> I recognised um, in Atlanta. Now, this is the final series. They're back again in Atlanta and they've also refocused on those core characters, whereas last series there were a couple of standalone episodes which just completely went in unexpected directions, didn't even feature any of the core characters, which was quite a divisive thing among fans of the show. I loved it. But this season, it's coming home in all sorts of senses. Yeah, I mean, this this has been so critically lauded. And yeah, as you say, a show with real twists and turns. Where's it heading towards, you know, what's the kind of likely conclusion of this uh, show? I think it's going to turn out well for Donald Glover. Well, it's never really been a sort of linear narrative. I mean, there's a sort of overriding emotional journey for for Ern, Donald Glover's character, but it's so surreal. For instance, in one episode, he's trying to sign D'Angelo, the sort of reclusive 90s R&B singer. And in order to do that, he wanders into a kind of gas station where there's a weird room and he has to spend four days just bouncing a ball in there. <laughs> and then he ends up going through an air vent in a sort of Alice in Wonderland fashion and emerging from a cupboard in a line in the witch in the wardrobe fashion. And then meeting this guy who may or may not actually be the Angelo because we never actually see his face for the first, you know, 10 minutes. And it's just like, it's all very, very weird and surrealist. But at the same time, and I think this is its real genius, it's very rooted in the realities of being a young black man in America. Yeah. Right now. And it's got a lot to say about race and class and things that American TV actually doesn't really confront very often or certainly didn't used to before Atlanta came on the scene. Brilliant. Okay. Groundbreaking stuff. Ellen, thank you very much for your film and TV picks. Thank you for having me. And that's all for this month. I'm on the way to hang out in Croydon now that it's suddenly very trendy indeed. The Viva Magazine podcast is made by Ink Studio for Virgin Atlantic and is produced by David Clack at Perfect Loop Productions. Thanks as ever for listening in. See you next month. Bye.